Jonathan, it's great to be with you again, even if I lost the Bible trivia that you hosted. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you'd recovered from your scorching defeat yet. I haven't. Like, if I had come in second, I probably would have recovered by now, but third was third was humiliating. <laughs> like, third out of three. <laughs> yeah, you still did pretty well. Thanks. It was a tough contest that was totally subjective. So, in a way, I'm sorry. I don't know if you had an actual chance of winning, but... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know either. But it's good to be with you. Here's a non-trivia question for you that's just as important. What would you do in this particular situation? Would you want to pay $20 each time you brush your teeth or be paid $20 each time you chose not to brush them? I'll be honest, like getting in a good routine of Oral hygiene is not my strong suit. And so it's real tempting to say I would get paid 20 bucks to not brush my teeth. But I just feel like that's too dangerous. <laughs> See, I had I had a similar thought. As I was like, well, what if I don't brush my teeth? And I, I collected the money and then I just went to the dentist a little more often. Like I could use the money on that. But I was also like, man, if I'm walking around... And, like, my breath is just terrible. Like, is that worth the $20 and the additional trips to the dentist? Okay, so follow-up question. Is is the expectation that you're brushing your teeth twice a day, and so you're either paying, like, $40 a day for two brushes, or you're getting paid $40 a day with if you don't brush? Yes. Okay. See, okay, with that distinction, and I'll tell you why, I'm going to go with getting paid to not brush my teeth, because I am thoroughly convinced, like many aspects of our society today, that the rules about oral hygiene are, you know, capitalist propaganda <laughs> that the dental industry developed to make sure that, you know, we buy toothpaste and use it and go to the dentist all the time and pay for that. Like, there's not much, like, so many of the things that we believe are real and true, especially when it comes to our health and well-being, were at one point, like, marketing campaigns. <laughs> it's like, I don't want my teeth to fall out. I don't want them to hurt. I want to take care of them. I just don't know that I'm convinced that I need to brush my teeth as often as the dental hygiene machine tells us that we need to. <laughs> Is this too conspiracy theory-ish for you, or? I don't think so, only because not that long ago, it came out that there's no evidence that flossing helps, even though dentists <laughs> have been saying this for years. And dentists claim it's because they can't find a sample size of people who floss regularly to like compare it with people who don't floss. But I just still think, like, all they admitted was that they don't have any evidence that flossing actually helps. So it's not a big leap to say that the dental machine, as you called it, is pushing you to brush two times a day. Yeah, so I will faithfully commit to brushing once a day and get paid. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry for getting us so far off track. 
It's okay. Let's bring it back with our scripture. Okay. This is Luke chapter 19, verses 29 through 40 from the Common English Bible. As Jesus came to Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he gave two disciples a task. He said, Go into the village over there. When you enter it, you will find tied up there a colt that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks, why are you untying it? Just say, its master needs it. Those who had been sent found it exactly as he had said. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, its master needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their clothes on the colt, and lifted Jesus onto it. As Jesus rode along, they spread their clothes on the road. As Jesus approached the road leading down from the Mount of Olives, the whole throng of his disciples began rejoicing. They praised God with a loud voice because of all the mighty things they had seen. And they said, Blessings on the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heavens. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, scold your disciples. Tell them to stop. He answered, I tell you, if they were silent, the stones would shout. Thanks for reading that for us, Jonathan. It's a pretty well-known passage, to say the least. So is is there anything that jumped out at you? Or is this just like so, so well-known that it's hard to to even see it in a new way? There's definitely some familiarity to it. And I think I'm actually having flashbacks to our Palm Sunday episode from last year, where I think we were in Mark and talking about uh, the comparison of receiving a dignitary into a Roman city it's the same way as uh, catching a water balloon where you have to kind of like come out and meet it and like usher it in. Yeah. yeah. But I think the thing that stands out to me the most is the phrase, its master needs it. Jesus is telling his disciples to go get him this donkey. And he comes up with a contingency plan for resistance <laughs> to someone coming and just taking this donkey. And it happens exactly as he says it. And we don't actually really get a response from the owners of the donkey, too. They just ask the question, why are you untying the colt? And they give the answer that Jesus prescribed. Its master needs it. And apparently that's sufficient. Like, the text doesn't give us more information. But I actually kind of was reading it from the perspective of the donkey owners. <laughs> I'd just be like... What the heck are you guys doing? What does he want this donkey? Like, yeah, and so I guess that's that's what stands out to me is just kind of from that different perspective. You know, did these donkey owners like follow them into town? Was there any more conflict? I don't know. Hmm. I know that's not the main part of the story, but that's just what stood out to me in this pass through. I'm indebted to Dr. Emerson Powery's short exposition of this text for working preacher and we've we've talked about emerson powery before like both of us have met him know him at least a little bit 
But in his his kind of short commentary for Working Preacher this week, he he talks about this, just what you're talking about. He talks about the cult. And he basically says that he thinks that the crowd and the people who are following Jesus are actually like a little bit bigger than Luke's gospel lets on. Like there's more people there. Jesus' sphere of influence is bigger than it, it looks like at first glance. So he wonders if the owners of the cult are actually some of Jesus' followers. Because he's like, who would just give up their cult? Just like you said. Who would just be like, yeah, you can have it. Like, he thinks like maybe there's they already also know Jesus. I thought that was interesting. Something that I hadn't really thought about. Yeah. It's also kind of funny to me that Jesus specifically wants to enter into town on a cult that no one has ever ridden. And thinking about it from the cult's perspective, like what's the cult's reaction to having someone sit on their back? <laughs> Good goal. It seems like a pretty high risk situation. And I think it is really interesting to contrast that with, you know, thinking about an emperor or a governor entering into a place, you know, with a, you know, chariots pulled by the strongest, most intimidating horses compared with like a baby donkey. <laughs> But it's just it's just feels like it could go terribly wrong, you know. It's like someone saying, if they were developing a huge presentation, bring me the intern who has never done any public speaking. <laughs> and if that person knows something, like, great, you might blow everyone away. But at the same time, you're taking a huge risk yeah. seemingly out of nowhere. <laughs> It reminds me, this is just one of my like all-time favorite fun facts, is that the Roman Emperor Caligula elected his horse, or appointed his horse, to the Roman Senate, because he said it had been of more help to him than any of the senators. Like, like <laughs> which is just, A, amazing, but B, like, it shows you also how much he values his horse, right? In comparison to this cult that Jesus had never ridden before, probably never even seen before. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a fun fact about Caligula. It is fun. So what else, when you were preparing for this conversation, what else stood out to you? It's kind of important moments in this passage. This is a little bit about the context of this passage. Because especially on Palm Sunday... At least the way that I've heard it is this this text is always on its own. But right before this, Jesus tells this parable. He tells a parable about a king who is going away and he puts slaves in charge of his property. And then he comes back and he wants to see like how well they did. Did you know did they turn a profit? Did they do they lose money? Do they have the same amount of money? And basically, like, he's super mad at the one who doesn't make any money. And when I think about that parable, about this king who's really angry about not making any money, like, he's violently angry. What comes next is Jesus entering Jerusalem on a colt as peacefully as he can. Like, that just strikes me as being so different and such a key narrative point that i've never considered before if i'm honest it's one of the ways i think where the lectionary 
can let us down because like we mm. it can make us see these texts in isolation yeah yeah that's one of the the things for me i don't know i've just wrestled with i guess this aspect of my relationship with scripture recently of is it valuable for me to come in and just read like a passage like this and i think part of me is intention like the maybe i would say the more spiritual part of me wants that as like a space and an avenue to create some sort of connection with the divine and then the wannabe bible scholar in me is like no <laughs> you need more context you need more of the surrounding passages you need more commentaries and i think there is it's it is not an either or like i think we've recognized how additional context and additional resources can create a deeper encounter and something that's more meaningful. But at the same time, I think a lot of that is kind of a defense mechanism against letting some of this affect me more directly. Hmm. But I mean, that's, I mean, that's kind of a general reaction to your broader point of seeing how strong of a contrasting image this passage is really painting i've struggled with some of the same things like how you know when i open my bible when i start reading and my question is always well what you know what should i read like what okay you know i'll follow the lectionary for example well then you can run into the same thing that we ran into today where it's like oh i missed what happens right before this if i just open somewhere that also doesn't seem like that's really that helpful even if it's like, oh, you know, I just, I'm going to, I'm going to read one of the gospels. Which one? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Where are you going to start? You got to pick one of them. Um, yeah, so I think it's, part of me is, is sometimes like overwhelmed by the number of choices I have when I read my Bible. But where, where I should read and how I should read and what translation I should read and, you know, it goes on and on and on. That sometimes I'm just like, I don't, I don't know. Let me just, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna throw a dart and pick one. <laughs> yeah. But that's, I mean, that's part of why we're here and why we're doing this, right? Is to, to show that honest engagement with these wild and crazy texts can unlock something more for us than just more knowledge about an ancient compilation of literature. <laughs> yeah, you can throw the dart and get something out of it. Yeah. But it it's it's more than that too. It like it's not just a surface level encounter where we are left with more knowledge or more information and not having been changed ourselves too yeah it doesn't it doesn't always prepare us for bible trivia right like it's not about just the knowledge that we have yeah there's there's hopefully more there's hopefully more to it another level that's going on yeah my hope is that encounters with these scriptures would make us more like the god about whom these scriptures are written <laughs> 
but we know that that's not always the case. So I guess to bring us back to this current story, what does this mean for us right now? If I could, what's the point? Well, I've been thinking more about that contrast and that we talked about between the violent king and the parable right before this and this peaceful Jesus who rides into Jerusalem, not like a Roman military conqueror or an emperor, but as just like a lowly person who would never endanger anybody. Somebody who you wouldn't be afraid of. Like somebody who just, who looks unassuming when they come in. Not, you know, with with huge armies that accompany them. So I guess my question is like, what what does it mean to model this peaceful Jesus? Especially like right now when a war is going on in Ukraine. Well, it just feels like there's a lot of tension. And some of that tension isn't just like outright violence. But they're just like, there's just like a lot of anxiety, I think, if I can say it that way, in the world. Sometimes I say we have a variety anxiety. Like when things are, when people are different, when things are different, mm-hmm. like that scares people. So like, what does it look like to like, be someone who who like can can radiate peace into those situations even if you know it never makes it across the atlantic ocean to ukraine and what does it look like to radiate peace when we're walking around town when we're at the mall when we're eating pizza okay so if we're talking about modeling jesus in this passage something that stands out to me is jesus is in the middle of a literal even if modest a literal parade for him and we don't get much about his attitude and response but he offers a statement at the very end about how if the crowd were silent even the rocks would shout the stones would shout as we read and you could read into that a measure of arrogance from jesus right like well even if they weren't yelling the stones would be but that's not how i'm reading it Partly because I don't necessarily associate that kind of character with Jesus. (laughs) But also because I hear in that a confidence in the understanding of reality. Mm -hmm. Not portraying a false reality. Because oftentimes I I would associate arrogance with puffing yourself up beyond what is actually real and true. But Jesus has a grounded confidence here. A humble confidence (laughs) because he knows what's up and i think that's where where i can see some translation into our world is recognizing the reality of the situation right being truthful about our history about our present and understanding its implications for the moment being self-aware about our personalities, our habits, our tendencies when we interact with other people, and knowing how those tendencies affect others, and maybe working to change them, but having a real understanding of where you are. And so when you're eating pizza, (laughs) 
I think that translates into a reality of the situation. That oftentimes, you know, if you're at a restaurant, someone's taking your order. It could be real easy to shift into a mentality of, this person is serving me. This person is here working for me. When in reality, in that moment, your connection just happens to be that you're asking for some pizza and they're bringing it to you. (laughs) And having a more realistic understanding, a more grounded confidence, more humility in that kind of situation to treat the people around you as a human being, a fellow human being more specifically, feels like a way we can reflect Jesus's attitude and behavior that we see demonstrated in this passage. I think just your main point about knowing the reality of the situation, because I was also thinking like one direction we can lean is toward arrogance, like you were talking about, like thinking that the pizza person serves you, but that just happens to be like the relationship that you find yourself in at that one moment. But I think the other side is like you can fall not into arrogance, but ignorance and also have like a certain level of peace in which like you have no idea what's going on. You don't know what's happening in the world. You don't know what's happening in your community. Like you're not even really sure what's happening in your own life. I mean, sometimes I find myself there in my own life. I think there's something about trying to understand what's going on around you, about seeing the world that can make the peace that you radiate seem so much more genuine, so much more real than just like people who seem like really out of it, right? Like out of touch. Like sometimes like that can be a type of peace, but it just doesn't, it just seems like it's, it's not real somehow, or it's like it's not reflective of the world. Sorry, I took what you said, and then I like added. No, that's good. That's okay. what a conversation is. Okay, that's true. <laughs> true. Truth. And, and on that note, so we've talked a little bit about arrogance and ignorance. And I think there's also a flip side to arrogance, too. You know, yeah. arrogance, if it's... If it's turned into like hostility towards others Mm. sometimes arrogance not necessarily arrogance but sometimes also that misconstrued view self translates to hostility towards yourself too yeah yeah either because of your own self-talk the own narrative that you have in your head your own relationship with yourself or because of the ways that we experience that kind of negative talk from the world too. And I would I would often associate this more with marginalized communities though. It's like if the chief challenge of humanity is not having a healthy view of ourselves, our culture tells you and me as straight white guys that we're the bee's knees. <laughs> and I don't know what a, pro- what a corresponding body part of a bee would be the opposite of the knees. But often for people of color, many times for women, for queer folks, for people who have different abilities, they're not the bee's knees. <laughs> and we, we sink into those definitions or we inflate ourselves to meet those definitions. And again, it's not... A, 
a situation. It's not an understanding that's grounded in reality. It's grounded in a type of reality, a constructed reality in the systems that we live in. Mm. But it's not the reality on which we rest in Christ. Mm. It's not the reality that grounds Christ in the confidence to say, yeah, you're right, I could tell these people shouting for me to shut up. (laughs) I could. But even if they did, it wouldn't stop. I appreciate that point a lot, Jonathan, that in order for us to have peace and to radiate it in the way that Jesus does, like we, we also have to have some type of peace with ourselves. We can't be having this deep inner turmoil. And just like you were saying, we can't value ourselves too highly, which is maybe the, the predicament that white, educated, cisgender, straight men, just like us, can fall into. But the reverse is also true, is we can't undervalue ourselves. As so many marginalized communities have been told to do for for centuries or longer. Like I was saying, what can give Jesus this peace is that Jesus' identity is secure and that's not always true for for us but somehow i think we have to try and keep reminding ourselves that our identity is secure i guess that's one thing for me that keeps coming up when we do these you know deep dives into certain passages when i've talked about this i think that a lot on the podcast but like one of the things that it keeps the bible keeps telling me is that my identity with god is secure and i think if i can somehow hold that tightly like maybe then i can be somebody who radiates peace even when i'm eating pizza and when i'm brushing my teeth or not or not brushing my teeth i hear that and i i truly i hear that in encounters with scripture too it's like no matter the story it feels like something comes back to this is who you are both in the singular you and the y'all you this is (laughs) who you are whether or not i listen to it and take it seriously is another question but seth i think that presents us with a great opportunity to pray to be secure in that identity I'd love to pray for us. Will you pray with me? Purveyor of peace, you hold us close. Love us despite our arrogance or our lack of confidence. Let us rest in that identity so that we can create space for others to do the same. We pray this through the one who never leaves us or forsakes us, but is our peace in the midst of turmoil. Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thanks everyone for being part of this conversation as well. We're so glad that you're part of this community, even on episode 101. Stay tuned during this holy week 
as we approach the celebration of Easter for two special episodes in your feed this week. We'll release an episode on Good Friday and an episode on Easter Sunday. But until then, Seth, thanks for walking us through that story. Thanks for helping me tell it. I mean, it's the same thing as orange juice being good for you, like when you're sick. Yeah. It, like, contains trace amounts of vitamin C, but when you're you're drinking juice, you might as well be drinking a Dr. Pepper for breakfast, because then you'll at least get a little caffeine. Like, you're just drinking juice. That's all it is. It's the same way that Cocoa Puffs could be part of a balanced breakfast. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.